I was listening to a podcast the other day with a couple of church leaders who were talking about the state of the world and the state of the church. At one point, one of the pastors quoted some lines from a poem that felt remarkably relevant to our times. The poem is entitled, Tired. I'm so tired of waiting, aren't you? For the world to become good and beautiful and kind. It was written by the African-American poet Langston Hughes back in the 1920s. Hughes was a leading light in the Harlem Renaissance, when the black community was making its presence known in literary and artistic circles, even while still suffering discrimination and injustice. In the opening line of the poem, Hughes confesses his own weariness with the current state of affairs but then invites the reader to feel that weariness, too. I'm so tired of waiting, aren't you, for the world to become good and beautiful and kind. It's not one of his better-known poems, but a couple of years ago it began showing up in blogs and on social media as racial injustice reared its ugly head in our country. Those words were written almost a hundred years ago. But even with all the gains made in civil rights since that time, people of color, and all of us really, are still waiting for the world to become good and beautiful and kind, not just in terms of racial justice, but in light of so many things that just feel wrong right now. But there's a second stanza to the poem that doesn't get quoted nearly as often. It has an edgier, almost surgical feel to it. Let us take a knife and cut the world in two and see what worms are eating at the rind. The poet challenges us to take a brutally honest look at ourselves and our world, to look deep, to cut deep even, and see what's going on, what's wrong, where is it taking us, and, and can anything be done about it? Well, in the scripture passage we're going to be looking at today, a poet named James is going to do exactly that, cut the world in two, so to speak, to reveal what it is that's, that's eating at the rind and to show us how we in the world can be made whole again. And we're coming toward the end of our summer series in the book of James. Uh, next week, we'll pick up an interesting passage that we skipped over. But today, we come to what may be the centerpiece of James' letter. Now, we tend to think of James as a prophet when it comes to his writing, but there's something poetic about his work, too. Hebrew poetry works differently than the poetry we're used to. Poetry in English is mostly about rhyme and rhythm. Hebrew poetry is all about structure. And the big idea of the poem isn't typically found at the beginning or the end, but in the middle. I uh, think in terms of an hourglass with a train of thought flowing toward the middle where the big idea is and then away from the middle. Well, the passage we're looking at today, James 3, 13 through 17, appears halfway through chapter 3 of a five-chapter letter, almost exactly in the middle of the book. And it identifies the central theme of the letter, wisdom. So for eight weeks now, we've been turning to this ancient letter in which the Apostle James offers wisdom to Christians who found themselves in difficult circumstances and, and an unfamiliar landscape. 
So far, we've discovered wisdom for hard times, wisdom for relationships, wisdom for decision-making, wisdom for our wants, wisdom for our waiting. And today, we're going to go to the heart of the letter and discover wisdom for our world. A world that looks and feels awfully broken these days. What's gone wrong with the world and with us? Where does this brokenness come from? And where can we find the wisdom to make it and us whole again? Let's turn to James chapter 3, and we're going to begin at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Well, it's a rhetorical question, obviously. Who is wise and understanding among you? Uh, James isn't going to wait around for an answer, but he wants us to start asking ourselves if we are truly wise. Now, back in week one, when we launched the series, we, we pointed out the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge, we said, is information, facts, data, content. Wisdom is the application of that knowledge to the realities of life. Skill for living, we called it. Now, as it turns out, the world is doing pretty good when it comes to knowledge. Uh, they tell us that uh, up until the year 1900, the world's knowledge doubled every 100 years. But by the middle of the 20th century, it was doubling every 25 years. Now, they tell us, the world's knowledge is doubling every 13 months. Now, I don't know how they know all this, but if you ask me in 13 months, I should be able to tell you. Uh, but here's the unsettling thing. Much of that knowledge, apparently, is useless. Uh, according to one study, the average American uses only about 37% of what they learned in high school. That's probably not the most helpful point to make a week before school starts. Uh, one poll identified the top 10 useless things people learned in high school. And the list includes the Pythagorean theorem, the periodic chart of elements, the names of the presidents in order, photosynthesis, and how to make a paper snowflake. Now, anyone who listed that last one had obviously never had to entertain children on a snowy day when the power was out. Well, then they named the top 10 things people wished they learned in high school. And those included practical things like, like budgeting and household repairs and automotive maintenance, but also included some softer skills like how to make conversation, how to negotiate, how to manage emotional well-being. So it sounds like what people wanted more of was wisdom, knowledge applied, skill for life and relationships. And wisdom is what the book of James is all about. But it's a particular kind of wisdom that he's offering. <laughs> Listen again. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So the wisdom James is talking about isn't, isn't just about how to manage your money or change the oil in your car. It's about how to live a good and beautiful life, uh, the kind of life we talked about last spring. 
And by the way, guess who paid me a visit in the backyard as I worked on the message this week? <laughs> Remember this guy? He was our inspiration for that series. Oh, anyway, the, the point I'm trying to make is that, is that James is offering the kind of wisdom that Langston Hughes and the rest of us have been waiting for. A wisdom that's good and beautiful and kind. A wisdom that can make the world whole again. But that kind of wisdom isn't easy to come by, James goes on to tell us, because there's a counterfeit wisdom out there that leads to a different kind of a life and a different kind of world. So let's press on into verses 14 through 16. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. We've heard a lot in recent years about fake news. It's an accusation made from, from both ends of the political spectrum. It suggests that there's news out there, facts, information, that, that appears to be true and helpful, but is actually neither of those things. Now, however you may feel about the term, James seems to be telling us that there's fake wisdom out there too. And it stands in stark contrast to true wisdom which he'll talk about in the next paragraph. And in the central section of the letter, James calls out the differences between these two types of wisdom, what each one looks like, where each one comes from, and what each one produces. So in verse 14, he tells us what this fake wisdom looks like. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. James uses four very negative words here. Bitter, envy, selfish, and ambition. Bitterness implies unresolved anger and resentment. Envy wants what other people have and, and hates them for having it. Selfishness is about getting our way, regardless of what others might want or need. Ambition isn't inherently bad. But when it's tainted by these other three, it prompts us to, to use people and compromise our integrity to achieve our goals. One commentator describes how these qualities played out in the Greco-Roman world that James was writing to. He describes bitter envy as the self-seeking pursuit of political office by unfair means. And selfish ambition he describes as using unworthy and divisive means to promote one's own views or interests. Wow. I mean, keep in mind, that commentary was written a long time ago. But it sounds an awful lot like the social and political environment we find ourselves in today, doesn't it? On, on both sides of the aisle. That's what fake wisdom looks like, James says. And, and, and we're seeing a lot of it in our world today. But where does it come from, this bitter, envious, self-serving, self-promoting approach to life and relationships? Well, James tells us in the, next, in the next, next verse, such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. 
Now, this is where James' poetic use of language begins to show up. Notice the downward spiral of these three words. Uh, uh, This wisdom is, first of all, earthly, meaning it, it belongs to this fallen world we live in. Secondly, it is unspiritual or, or sensual, meaning it, it comes from our fallen human nature rather than from the heart of God. And then thirdly, it's demonic, meaning it comes from a very dark place, a place devoid of God and goodness. One commentator describes this sequence of words as a crescendo of perniciousness. James' point is that this fake or worldly wisdom has nothing to do with God or his good and eternal purposes. And then finally, James tells us where this fake wisdom will lead us, uh, the, the kind of life and relationships it produces. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. In other words, when we apply this fake wisdom to our life and work and relationships, it produces confusion, chaos, turmoil, and all kinds of hurtful and unhealthy behavior. Now, I don't know how you feel as you scroll through your news feed in the morning, as you watch what's happening in the world around us, but but it looks and sounds an awful lot like the kind of environment James is describing here, confusion and turmoil. I mean, I can't speak for all of us, but but there have been moments in recent years when I felt like I don't even recognize our country anymore, Uh, and times when I I don't recognize the church anymore. What's happened to us? One of the pastors on that podcast I mentioned was Rich Volotis. He's the pastor of New Life Church in Queens, New York. And at one point in the conversation, he said this. I think, like every other pastor and leader, the last couple of years, I've been weary, honestly. The way I've tried to explain it is we're living in a CPR world, a world in which there's this convergence of COVID, political idolatry, and racial hostility. And so the conversion of these three things have made it hard to breathe. I've been weary, he says. In other words, tired, like Langston Hughes and the rest of us, waiting for the world to be good and beautiful and kind. It's bad enough when this fake wisdom unleashes its ugliness in the world, but when it finds its way into the church, James is saying, it's especially disappointing and destructive. But before we're too quick to point fingers at politicians or the media or people who disagree with us, let's remember that James is asking us to look at ourselves. Who is wise and understanding among you? He asked at the beginning. He's holding up that mirror again, that mirror he mentioned back in chapter 1 inviting us to take a closer look at ourselves, to see what's wrong, and then do something about it. Now, none of us likes to think that we could be guilty of bitter envy or selfish ambition. 
But James' surgical cut has revealed that, that these things are eating at the rind of every human heart, including mine. I, I happen to be a, a three on the Enneagram, for those who are familiar with that scheme for understanding human personality. Threes want to achieve and be successful. They fear failure and not being valued. Healthy threes can accomplish a lot and contribute a lot to the well-being of people and organizations. But unhealthy threes can try too hard. Uh, they can end up using people or their position to serve their own needs and interests. And I'm not just a three. I'm a boomer who's a three. They can be the worst kind. Bigger, better, whatever it takes. So a few years ago, I, I took a lesson from the late scholar and pastor John Stott and composed a prayer for myself. A daily prayer that I could use to begin or end my time with God in the mornings. It took a few tries to come up with the words and themes that, that felt most true and most relevant to my life with God. It ended up being a, a few short paragraphs, and, and one of them goes like this. Deliver me, Lord, from self-reliance and worldly ambition, and fill me instead with your Holy Spirit as I surrender to your agenda for my life and my work. Deliver me, Lord, from self-reliance and worldly ambition and fill me instead with your Holy Spirit as I surrender to your agenda for my life and work. It's a prayer I need to pray on a regular basis because fake wisdom is always lurking in my heart and yours, whispering and prompting things that are untrue and unhelpful and, and ungodly. If you were to compose a prayer for yourself, asking God to deliver you from the world's way of thinking and working, what might you ask him to free you from and fill you with? Now, if you're a three, you've probably already begun working on that prayer in your head, so stop it right now and pay attention to the rest of this sermon. If you're a one, you're probably correcting my prayer. If you're a two, you're, you're praying it for the person next to you. And if you're a seven, you're wishing this sermon was over so you can go out and play. Well, that's all I'm going to say about the Enneagram. Uh, so James has taken that metaphorical knife and cut deep into our souls, revealing the fake wisdom that's eating away at us and our world. It's painful and, and, and even discouraging. But thankfully, James doesn't leave us there. In the next few verses, he shows us what true wisdom looks like, where it comes from, and what it produces. Uh, let's look at verses 17 and 18. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. James begins by identifying the source of this true wisdom, God himself. He calls it the wisdom that comes from heaven. 
He's actually echoing his words from earlier in the letter. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. It's the wisdom we talked about in week one of the series. Wisdom for life in this world from the one who gave us life and this world in the first place, who knows best how we can live in it and make the best of it. And having revealed to us where true wisdom comes from, James goes on to describe what true wisdom looks like. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Now, now this is where James' poetic bent shows up. In the Greek language, James was writing in, most of the words in this list begin with the same letter. They have a certain rhythm to them. A few of them even rhyme. Now, we lose some of that in the English translation, but there's still a a vivid, lyrical quality to these words. So just listen and enjoy them as we walk through them for a minute. True wisdom is, first of all, pure, meaning it's untainted by the bitter envy and selfish ambition we mentioned a moment ago. True wisdom is only and always helpful and godly. True wisdom is peace-loving, It brings people together rather than driving them apart. True wisdom is considerate, meaning it thinks of other people's needs and interests, not just our own. And it's submissive, meaning it puts those other people's needs and interests ahead of our own. It's full of mercy, quick to forgive and to give a second and third chance. It's full of good fruit. It shows itself in kindness and good deeds. True wisdom is impartial. It's committed to justice and treats every person with dignity and respect. And finally, true wisdom is sincere, meaning it comes from the deepest place in a person's heart. There's nothing phony or manipulative about it. What a picture James has painted with these words. He's a poet and an artist. It brings to mind the lesson that that Tom shared with us last week, that that what's on the inside will eventually work its way out. And James is showing us that when true wisdom finds its way from heaven to the deep places in our lives, it works its way out in goodness and beauty and kindness. But but how does James know all of this? Where did did he find the inspiration for these words? How was he able to describe so vividly what true wisdom looks like? Could it have anything to do with the fact that he was the half-brother of Jesus? That he had spent 20 or so years of his life growing up alongside Jesus, watching Jesus work and play? and serve, and lead, and love? Jesus was wisdom personified, wisdom made flesh and dwelling among us. Every aspect of Jesus' life and ministry reveals the wisdom of God, even his death. Now think about that for a minute. Jesus' death on the cross appeared to be the worst, ugliest, most hurtful way a person could possibly die. 
From the world's perspective, it looked like failure and tragedy and humiliation. But when you look at the death of Christ from a heavenly perspective, you realize it was the best kindness, most beautiful thing that could ever have happened to the human race because it revealed and created the potential to heal everything that had gone wrong. The cross of Christ was the knife that Langston Hughes mused about. The knife that sliced the world in two, literally sliced human history in two. On the one hand, it laid bare the brokenness of the world and the human heart. Remember, it was bitter envy and selfish ambition that put Jesus on the cross, political power-mongering and bad religion. But that same cross revealed the grace and the wisdom of God, who sent his Son into the world to live with us and to suffer and die for us, to make us whole again. Now, in another letter, written about the same time as this one, the Apostle Paul writes these words. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was the only thing that could heal our sin-sick hearts and restore our broken world. Only God could have known that, and only Jesus could have done that. So where does true wisdom come from? It comes from God. What does true wisdom look like? It looks like Jesus the best and most beautiful human being who ever lived. And what does true wisdom produce in the world? Well, James answers this way. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, the peace and righteousness James is talking about here is shalom. And you know what shalom means? Wholeness, wellness, everything as it was meant to be. Only wisdom can put the world back together again and make it at last good and beautiful and kind. True wisdom, wisdom from above. And here's the wonderful thing about this wisdom. It's ours for the asking. And James told us that back in chapter one. He, actually, he promised it to us. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Which means we don't have to sit around waiting for the world to change, waiting for it to become good and beautiful and kind. We can actually do something about it. We can turn to God in prayer and receive this true wisdom through faith in Jesus Christ who by his life and death and resurrection offers us forgiveness and freedom to become the good and beautiful people we were meant to be and want to be. And once we're changed by that wisdom, we can begin to change the world around us.
I have, I have a, a bit of a confession to make here. Uh, we weren't planning on preaching from this passage. As we laid out the series, we realized we couldn't cover everything in the book, and somehow this passage got set aside. <laughs> Talk about lacking wisdom. But a month or so ago, I was sitting at the Originals concert put on by our worship leaders. Beautiful and inspiring evening of music and worship as they shared one original song after another. And toward the end of the evening, they shared a song that Aaron and Catherine had written. And it was based on this text, James 3, 17 through 18. Uh, some of you may have heard the song earlier in the service, and we're all going to hear it and sing it as we close in just a minute. But as I listened that night, taking in the beauty of the music and the power of the words, I was overwhelmed. And I found myself praying, yes, Lord, this is the kind of people we want to be, who, who make peace, who show kindness, who are full of mercy and good deeds. This is the kind of church we want to be. And in that moment, I knew I had to preach on this passage. In fact, I couldn't wait to preach on this passage. And for weeks, it's been on my heart, in my prayers, and it feels good to be able to share it with you today. Because friends, this is the kind of wisdom our broken world needs right now. This is the kind of Jesus follower your friends and neighbors need to see right now. This is the kind of church that can bring healing and wholeness to our communities and our city and our world. And I pray and believe that the Lord is doing a new thing in our church, forming us into a community of peacemakers, people who will sow the seeds of the kingdom everywhere we go this fall, as we, as we go back to school and work and church. And I'm praying that in the year and years to come, we will see a harvest of things put right. People and relationships and the church and the broken systems of this world. And it begins when we humbly ask the Lord for wisdom, true wisdom that can make the world good and beautiful and kind. One day, one deed, and one person at a time. Let's do that right now. Thank you, Lord, for the beauty and power of the words we've considered today and for the wisdom to be found in relationship with your Son, Jesus. Grant us that wisdom, Lord, for everything awaiting us this fall, for the decisions we'll need to make, for the relationships we'll be forming, for the work we'll be doing and the knowledge we'll be seeking, by the power of your Spirit, make us good and beautiful and kind. And if there's anyone listening today, Lord, who has never opened their heart to your love and forgiveness, may they do so today, right now even, and discover life with you for their good and for the good of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for listening today, friends. I, I, I hope you'll join us next week for the last message in the series. And if you opened your heart to Christ today, or if you'd like to know more about what that means, I'd love to hear from you. Just send me an email, 
Brian with a Y at grace.org. Well, hey, let's uh, sing and pray this final song as we finish out today, and we'll see you next time. Grace be with you, friends. Peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest.